Crystal Dupuy Grabinger was born on December 22, 1980, and grew up in Lafayette, Louisiana. On April 5, 1997, 16-year-old Crystal married a man named Sean Grabinger. However, that would turn into a huge nightmare, starting on their wedding night. According to Crystal, Sean beat her up on their wedding night and then sexually assaulted her. He then beat her up on three more occasions before she sought a protective order petition against him in May 1997. After that, the couple filed for divorce. In May 1999, a protective order petition linked to the divorce filing said that while Crystal was four and a half months pregnant, Sean beat her up in front of one of her friends. He then ripped the phone off the wall so she couldn't call her father for help. Even after all that, the couple reconciled and the protective order was dropped. It would be another 11 years before she would file another protective order against him. This time, she said that Sean had stabbed her in the nose with a knife and punched her repeatedly after their four children left for school. He then sexually assaulted and threatened to kill her. After the protective order was filed, Crystal was granted temporary custody of their four children and was allowed to use the home in Bow Bridge as well as the family vehicle. However, this didn't stop Sean, and he continued to harass her and would come and go from the house as he pleased. However, once again, she dissolved the protective order without explanation. The abuse didn't stop, though, and she sought a protection order once again in November 2012 after he attempted to choke her to death. One month later, they reconciled, and she once again requested the protective order be dissolved. This time, she said, We have reconciled. We have been married for 16 years, and like all marriages, we have had problems. We still have one another, and at this time, we want to stay together. She also said, We have four children that need both parents. However, by January 2013, the court had not dissolved the order of protection, and Sean was caught violating it after visiting Crystal in the hospital. He was subsequently arrested for the breach. Sean then tried to use family vacation photos taken in late 2012 to prove that the order should have been dissolved. In mid-January, Crystal once again filed for divorce and said she and Sean had been living apart since early November 2012. In 2013, 32-year-old Crystal moved into a shelter for abused women. On February 7th, she left the shelter and was seen the following day, but after that, she disappeared into thin air. She even missed several child custody court dates later in the month. By February 18th, when no one had heard from her, she was reported missing. After Crystal's disappearance, Sean moved to Brazil, remarried a Brazilian woman, and obtained a residence permit. He even told officials in Brazil that he was an agent of the American Special Forces of Counterterrorism and was seeking refuge. On January 31, 2020, Sean was taken into custody after his Brazilian wife filed domestic violence charges against him. This was when officials discovered that he was an international fugitive who had an Interpol warrant out against him. On February 18, 2020, seven years to the date since Crystal went missing, Sean was arrested for the warrant and placed inside the Poso Alegre prison, where he would await extradition to the United States. However, he would never make it because he was found dead in his cell on Friday morning, February 21, 2020. Officials believe he hanged himself with a makeshift rope attached to the bars of the cell. 
He also left behind farewell letters to his family and friends, asking them to take care of his kids. Unfortunately, that might have been their last hope to solve the case. If Crystal was murdered and her body dumped in a swamp in Louisiana, they would most likely never find it. As of 2023, she has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Angela May Meeker, who went by Angie, was born on July 9, 1965, and lived in Tacoma, Washington with her mother and three siblings. Angie was a troubled child who had transferred to Baker Junior High School from Stewart Middle School in January 1979 after setting fire to a fellow student's locker. By March of the same year, she had quit school altogether. On July 7, 1979, just two days before her 14th birthday, Angie borrowed a dollar from her sister and left home on foot, heading for the Tacoma Mall Shopping Center to buy a birthday card for a friend. On her way, a friend of hers saw her walking and offered her a ride, which she accepted. After allegedly dropping her off outside a Payless store near the mall, Angie was never seen again. There was a birthday party scheduled that evening for Angie and her friend, but she never showed up. It would be three days before Angie was reported missing. Even then, the police didn't initially take it seriously because Angie had a history of running away and staying gone for multiple days at a time. However, her family, especially her mother, knew this time felt different, but it would still take two years before her status was changed from a runaway to a missing person. Angie was known to hitchhike, and her mother believes that's exactly what she did that day and what likely led to her disappearance. After Angie went missing, a cousin of her boyfriend received a phone call from an unidentified person, believed to be a teenage boy, who claimed he murdered Angie and dumped her body in the ocean. During the two-and-a-half-hour phone call, the caller even threatened to kill Angie's boyfriend and some of her other friends as well. However, the police concluded that this was just a cruel prank played by a juvenile. At one point, investigators considered the possibility that she was a victim of the Green River serial killer. The family even turned over Angie's dental records to compare against victims of the Green River Killer, but no matches were found. Unfortunately, 43 years have passed since Angie went missing, and as of 2023, this case remains unsolved. Kylan Patrick Stubler was born in Columbia, Missouri on June 13, 1993. Kylan was described by family and friends as super social and someone who knew everybody, and everybody knew him. In 2011, Kylan was bouncing between his father's home and the homes of his friends because he didn't have a permanent residence, a job, or a driver's license. But he was planning on attending summer school at Hickman High School and wanted to enroll for the fall semester. On April 21st, Kylan left his father's home around 2 p.m., and was never seen again. Colin was seen on surveillance video at a convenience store at 900 Conley Road. Later that day, an eyewitness saw him at a Dollar General at 3020 Paris Road and said he appeared visibly upset. After he disappeared, a friend came forward and said that Colin had spent the night with him. He also said that early the next morning, Colin caught a ride from someone and left. This was the last sighting of Colin. 
A month after he disappeared, a warrant was issued for his arrest after he failed to appear in court on a felony marijuana possession charge. However, his family, and even the prosecutor on the case, do not believe he is on the run from the law, mainly because Kylan was under the impression that the charge would be reduced and he would end up with probation. However, one theory is that somebody was afraid he was going to snitch in court and murdered him for it. What do y'all think? Let me know in the comments below. Patrick Cress, who went by Pat, was born on August 30th, 1969, to parents Dick and Katie. He was described as a good kid who never had to be disciplined or punished. He didn't mind school, but disliked being indoors and preferred the outdoors instead. On Friday, April 29th, 1983, Pat's parents agreed to let him spend the night at a friend's house with plans to meet back up the next day. When the following day rolled around, Pat called his parents and asked to spend another night, but his parents said no. They said if he came home, he could go to the Evergreen Speedway races with them, and Pat agreed. Since Pat's parents were new to the area, they weren't sure exactly where he was staying and instead agreed to pick him up at 1 p.m. at the Safeway, less than a mile from his friend's house. They hung up at 12.30 p.m. and his parents headed to the pickup location. They arrived before Pat and began waiting. However, by 1.45 p.m., Pat was still a no-show. So they called home and spoke with their daughter, Kim, who said Pat had called back a little while ago and she told him that their parents were already on their way. This would be the last time anyone ever heard from Pat again. After reporting him missing, the police initially listed him as a runaway. Bonnie Bearwald, a teacher at Pat's school, said she saw him sometime between noon and 1.45 p.m. on April 30th, walking west on Northeast 132nd Street, which is about three blocks west of Interstate 405. There was another sighting by someone at the Skate King rink who told police that they saw Pat shortly before midnight on April 30th. This made investigators wonder if somebody he knew picked him up while he was walking earlier in the day or if the person had their days mixed up. This could be a possibility since Pat and his friend went to the skating rink the night before. 18 days later, on May 18, 1983, a Puget Sound Power and Light employee working on a new apartment complex at the dead end of 116th Avenue Northeast discovered Pat's deceased body. His ultimate cause of death was blunt force trauma. When investigators began speaking with other students and friends of Pat, they learned of a rumor that began spreading at a party before Pat's body was found. The rumor was that Pat was deceased in water with his head bashed. They interviewed several teenagers, trying to find the source of the rumor, but were unsuccessful. They also discovered a note that read, To Michelle, from Kim, it's important, it's a slight possibility the police don't know yet, so don't tell, cause that might be wrong. In one report, it says that detectives were never able to locate the Michelle or Kim from the note. However, I saw somewhere else that the Kim was Kim Reynolds, which makes me believe they knew who wrote the note, but it wasn't in relation to Pat. With no further leads at this point, the case would go cold. After 20 years, a detective still working on the case said that there are people who were teenagers at the time of Pat's death 
especially those who attended Kamiakin Junior High and Juanita High School, that he would like to speak to. However, multiple people on his list have since died, and one has even been in a coma for the last 20 years. In April 1993, Patrick's mother, Katie, sadly died without ever knowing who murdered her son. As of 2023, no one has ever been arrested for the death of Pat, and this case remains unsolved. Pauline Frances Stormont was born in Ozark, Arkansas on April 3, 1944, to parents Paul and Lillian. In high school, she served as the president of her freshman class and was described as an all-American girl with a gentle soul. After graduating high school, she went on to attend Arkansas Tech University in Russellville. In June 1965, she married Charles Joseph Pat, but the marriage would only last a year. After the divorce, Pauline told a friend that she was deathly afraid of her ex-husband. She would then move to Memphis and began working for the Shelby County Sheriff's Department emergency team and was also teaching first aid for the American Red Cross. She also had a job at a security company helping to catch shoplifters. Six years later, she decided to re-enroll at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville and moved in with a roommate named Alice Pat Murphy at 102 South Duncan Avenue. One day, two males stopped by their place at 2 p.m. and asked if the girls wanted to join them for drinks. However, both the roommate and Pauline declined and the men left. The roommate said that two or three evenings later, Pauline received a phone call from an unidentified person who asked her about the night they had taken drugs. Pauline got upset and hung up the phone after the caller wouldn't identify himself. On April 12, 1971, at 7.30 p.m., Pauline was at the ROTC Center where she worked as a secretary. Afterward, she attended a musical production at the Fine Arts Center before heading to the main library on campus. Later that night, around 9.45 p.m., three different people would see Pauline walking home. The first was Mike Adair, who saw her around Duncan and Center Street with a man following behind her. The second was Gary Gamble, who saw Pauline walking with an arm full of books and a man about 20 feet behind her. The third person was Joe Clifton, who saw Pauline and considered offering her a ride but chose not to. A few seconds later, both Gary and Joe turned into the Summit Terrace apartment parking lot. As they were pulling in and Mike Adair was getting out of his car, all three of them heard Pauline scream, Help! As they ran to help, they found Pauline lying halfway in the road and halfway in the grass with blood all over her skirt. She was alive, but had been stabbed multiple times and was begging for help. The only thing she could remember about her attacker was that he wore glasses and had run toward the campus. She was then rushed to the Washington General Hospital, but would sadly die during surgery at 11 p.m. 45 minutes after the attack, police officers noticed a car parked on Dixon Street, about four blocks from the crime scene. One occupant of the car was 17-year-old Wallace Peter Kunkel, who was found with blood on his jacket. He was then taken in and held for questioning. Investigators then also found blood on his shirt and pants, but he invoked his right to remain silent and requested an attorney. His clothes were then sent to the state medical examiner for analysis. 
three days after the homicide, Sheriff Bill Long found a butcher knife in the ground behind a vacant house across the street from Pauline's apartment. After finding the weapon, Kunkel was charged with the murder. However, after passing a polygraph test, all charges were dismissed. A month after the murder, with detectives no closer to solving the case, they turned to the security company that Pauline worked for in Memphis. Her job while there was to catch thieves in department stores, and this gave investigators the idea that someone from a past case she worked on might have been responsible for the murder. However, after trying to trace individual cases that she was involved in, nothing came of it. Unfortunately, with no further leads, the case would go cold. It has been over 50 years since Pauline was murdered, but as of 2023, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.